Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Let's pray together. Father, we are here today because you, Jesus, our great God and Savior, have redeemed us. Lord, you gave yourself up to redeem us, to set us free. And so, God, I pray right now for us as we prepare to hear your word, as we prepare to to learn, as we prepare to worship with our minds and with our hearts, God, pray that you would set us free to understand, set us free from the, 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 the brain fog that keeps us from understanding, set us free from the bondage of sin that keeps us from surrendering our lives to you, God. And I pray that today we would embrace not just this identity as the redeemed people of God, but we would embrace redemption. Lord, that you would set us free today. And so Holy Spirit, would you in power come and fall on this place and not only teach us, Lord, but transform us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, normally when you look up in the dictionary, a definition of any word, you're going to find a description of what that word means. You're not going to find a description of what the word doesn't mean. Because by very definition, the definition of a word excludes all of the other options. This word means this. Well, does it mean that? No, no, no. It means this. Well, can it mean that other thing over there? No, it, it, it means this. By defining the word, you exclude all other meanings. And so dictionaries, you know, they might include a thesaurus where there's antonyms, but dictionaries don't give descriptions of what it doesn't mean. It gives a description of what it means, except for one word that I have found. That word is literally. Okay, Webster's Dictionary now includes a section under the heading literally to define that literally does not actually mean figuratively or virtually. So many people in our culture misuse literally using it for emphasis that it's become socially accepted, that good old Webster decided to put a stop to it. Literally means literally. It does not mean figuratively. Today, I want us to look at another word. I want us to look at a word that Scripture uses over and over to define those who belong to God. That word is redemption. But the way we often use this word leads me to believe that it does not mean what we think it means. So what it means to be redeemed. What does it mean for us to be redeemed? 
The word uh, redeem is used in a variety of non-religious contexts today. You can redeem coupons or rewards points or gift cards by exchanging them uh, and using them instead of cash. That's one way we use the word redeemed. Redeem the coupons, right? You can also redeem yourself by, um, you know, uh, uh, making up for past mistakes or proving that there has been personal growth in your life. Uh, I'm on a co-ed softball team here in Carpinteria, and I made a ridiculous error on Tuesday night and put our team in a really bad situation. Uh, but those of you on the team can attest that I followed it up with some decent plays, got us out of the jam, and redeemed myself. Okay, these are the ways that we use the word redemption in the non-religious context. But when we open the Bible, the word redeem takes on a profound and distinct meaning that's important for us to understand because it has massive implications for who we are and how we are to live. And so I want to start talking about redemption by talking about what it's not. See, redemption does not equal salvation. See, redemption is part of salvation, but the two concepts are not exactly interchangeable. Okay. Jesus, life, death, resurrection, and ascension have accomplished a variety of things for us, right? Jesus has accomplished forgiveness of sins, has accomplished justification, which means you've been declared righteous. It's accomplished adoption. You have been adopted into the family of God. Propitiation, right? Jesus satisfied the wrath of God. Uh, reconciliation, you are no longer an enemy of God. It's accomplished also redemption. All of these things are incredibly important things that the, the life, death, and resurrection and ascension of Jesus has accomplished, but it's all under the umbrella of the term salvation. To put it another way, if salvation is a pie chart, redemption is only a slice of the salvation pie. Okay, to grasp the full essence of what the, the specifics of what redemption is, I want us to explore its Old Testament context where redemption is everywhere. Throughout the Old Testament, God gave commands and criteria regarding the redemption of land, people, and personal property. So land or property can be redeemed. If someone uh, was experiencing financial hardship, they could sell off their land or sell their property to someone else to get out of that financial problem. But somebody else, a relative of that person, had a duty. They had a responsibility to be a kinsman redeemer who would purchase the land back and restore it to its former ownership. And therefore, the land was said to be redeemed. Um, a servant could be redeemed from uh, slavery. If someone, because of financial hardship, again, they could not sell their land and, and leave their family in their land, but they could sell themselves into slavery as a form of uh, service to pay off their debt. But again, 
there was a responsibility on the family of that person to redeem them by paying off their debt to uh, their master and restoring that person to their family and to their land, in which case they would have been redeemed. In non-Jewish contexts, it was said of those individuals that they had been bought with a price. Now remember that. Okay, write it down. Bought with a price because it's going to come into play in much of what Paul says regarding our redemption in the New Testament. It's a significant phrase. And so a servant that uh, had been purchased from their master and restored to their family and their land was redeemed. They were bought with a price. So there's this context for redemption in the economic world of the Old Testament. But hands down in the Old Testament, the greatest example of redemption is the Israelites' exodus from Egypt. Deuteronomy 7, 8 says, But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers, that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So in the same way that a servant could be redeemed by being purchased from their master and restored to their land, God says, I have purchased you from your master, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and I have restored you to myself. And I am going to restore you. I am going to plant you in the land that I have called you to. And so like a redeemed servant, the Israelites were saved. They were, they were uh, redeemed from Pharaoh's power from his rule and into a relationship where they could serve their true God and King. And so they were redeemed. And so God continues throughout the Old Testament to remind them, I have redeemed you. I have redeemed you. I have redeemed you. And so in this context, to redeem something mean, or, or someone is to buy it back and return what was purchased to its original state or its original owner. Someone who has been redeemed has been set free from one context and set free for their original purpose. They've been set free from their hardships and set free for their original intended God-given purpose. And so throughout the Bible, God reminds them, I've redeemed you, I've redeemed you, which underscores the significance of what he's done for them, both to set them free from slavery, but to set them free for worship. This is incredibly, incredibly significant. There are two sides to the redemption coin. The redeemed have been set free from slavery and set free for God. So let's talk about this first one. The people of God have been set free from slavery, but slavery to what? Paul says you have been redeemed from all lawlessness. See, lawlessness is another way of saying sin. 
John 3, 4 says that sin is lawlessness. And so when we talk about the redeemed people of God, we mean the people of God have been set free from the slavery to sin. We have been set free from slavery to sin. Jesus said in John 8, 34, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. When we obey sin's demands, we put ourselves in service of sin. Sin rules over us when we continue to persist in sin. But if we have been set free, if we've been redeemed from sin, then you no longer have to serve that master. If you have been set free from slavery to sin, you no longer have to serve that master. Jesus has set you free. Jesus said, if the the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. You have been set free, which means you don't have to sin. Now, that might sound like an obvious uh, statement, but it's not. And it's also not true of everybody. If you have been redeemed, you don't have to sin. And in this context, this means that those apart from Christ cannot help but obey their sin nature. Okay, as, as believers, those who have been redeemed, we still experience sin and temptation in our lives, but we don't have to obey it. In the context of this, if sin is our, if, if we are a slave to sin, we cannot help but obey that master. Now, this does not mean that non-Christians are incapable of doing good things. I want to make that clear. This doesn't mean that non-Christians are incapable of doing good things. But what it does mean is that even the good things we do, apart from Jesus, still come from a heart that resists God's rule. Okay, if you are here and you are not a believer, even the good things that you can point to still come from a heart that resists God's rule. Rule. Now you're thinking to yourself, you're a fool, Adam. You have no idea what you're talking about. I can do things all the time. I can choose all the time to do things that I want to do or to not do things that I don't want to do. I have autonomy over my actions, and so I can choose not to sin. That may feel true. Okay, but that is a very limited understanding of what sin is. Sin is not limited to your actions. Okay, sin is not limited to my actions. Okay, sin is a posture of the heart that resists God's rule. So you can leave here today and choose to not commit some heinous act just to prove that you are not a slave to sin. And in doing so, you prove that you are still resisting God's rule, which makes you a slave to sin. Okay, even when you resist sin, to do it in order to disprove God and disprove God's word proves 
that you are still under sin as your master. You continue to resist God's rule. And so you can do good things from a heart that has rejected God. Even when we resist sin apart from Jesus, we do so as a slave because it only keeps us in our bondage, in our opposition to God. But for those who have been redeemed, not only do you feel like you have autonomy over your choice to not sin, but you do it out of love and you do it out of worship of God. God, I long to please you. I want to please you because you have saved me, because you have redeemed me. It's a very different motive and comes from a very different place in our hearts. It comes from a desire to serve God, to worship and obey God rather than resist and disprove God. When we define sin only by the actions that we do, it completely misses the heart. That we have hearts apart from Jesus that resist God's rule. Consider someone who is in bondage of addiction. Okay, think of someone who is uh, struggling with an addiction to alcohol. Okay, that person may choose in order to convince their spouse, their family, their employer, or themselves, they may choose to actually quit drinking for a time in order to convince people that they don't have a problem so that they can continue to drink for the rest of their lives. Okay, that is not freedom. That is temporarily pausing an addiction in order to fully embrace it for the rest of your life apart from the, uh, the, 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 you know, the intervention of people in, in their lives. But someone who has been set free from the addiction of alcoholism, okay, they don't quit so that they can continue. They quit because they know they've been set free and they don't want to be in bondage to this thing anymore. Okay, they may still struggle with temptation. They may even uh, fail occasionally, right? Just as Christians, we still struggle with temptation. We still see sin in our lives, but we don't have to obey its demands. We don't have to. We are actually able to live in righteousness for God's glory out of a heart of worship rather than a heart of whether it's trying to earn our own salvation or whatever it is, this heart that resists God. Jesus has set us free. And so little by little, sin loses its power over the redeemed. And we learn to walk in freedom from it. So we have to understand our redemption in the context of biblical redemption. It means that you were once under the rule of sin. Sin was your master, but not anymore. You've been set free. You've been redeemed. You no longer have to sin. Your heart is actually capable of worshiping God through your good works. Both 1 Corinthians 6.20 and 7.23 say that we have been bought with a price. There's that phrase. Paul says, you are not your own. 
you have been bought with a price. You have been purchased out of slavery to sin and into a new life. But this doesn't mean that you get to do however as you please. It doesn't mean that you can live however you want. We have been redeemed from sin in order that we would belong to God. We belong to the one who has redeemed us. We have belonged to the one who has purchased our freedom. We belong to our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, as Paul says in Titus 2, this passage that we have been reading. He now has the authority over us. Our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, he now gets to call the shots. And so the people of God have been set free from slavery to sin, but also the people of God have been set free for good works. You have been set free from slavery to sin and set free with a purpose for good works. Jesus has redeemed us from all lawlessness and purified for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. That's Titus 2.14. In purchasing our freedom, God has purchased us for himself and has purposed us for good works. He has purchased you for himself and he has a purpose for you. That being good works. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We have been saved from slavery to sin, and set free for good works. But Titus 2 doesn't just say that we should do good works. Titus 2.14 says that we should be zealous to do them. Now, when we think of zeal in our culture, we think of passion. Wow, that person has passion. They've got zeal. But the word in the original language is actually the same word as the word for jealous. To be zealous is to be jealous, okay? And that can feel weird to us because our culture doesn't like jealousy. And we think of jealousy as a sin, but jealousy is not a sin. God is a jealous God and God is not guilty of sin. See, we conflate jealousy with envy. They're not the same thing. See, jealousy is a zeal to protect something that belongs to you. Okay, so a jealous husband, if his wife is stepping out on him, is the appropriate context for, that, the, the appropriate emotion, the appropriate thing for that husband is to be jealous. Okay, if your husband is stepping out on you, be jealous, he belongs to you. Okay, jealousy is a zeal to protect what belongs to you. And so when God's people are stepping out on him and giving their worship to some false God or giving their glory to something else, God says, I am a jealous God that you belong to me and I will stop at nothing 
to regain you for myself. That's jealousy, a zeal to protect that which belongs to you. Envy is a lust to acquire something that does not belong to you. Okay? I want that person's house. I want that person's spouse. I want that person's car. I want that, and I am going to do what I can to get that thing that does not belong to me, belongs to that person. That is envy and covetousness. That is a sin. Jealousy is a zeal to protect that which belongs to you. And so I want to ask you, are you zealous? Are you jealous for good works? Because God prepared good works beforehand that who might walk in them? That we might walk in them. He made good works for you. Who do they belong to? Me. They belong to you. God created this good work before the foundations of the world, before he ever redeemed you. said, I have made this for you, the church, the redeemed people of God. You, Adam, you, whoever you are, I have made this for you to go and walk in it. Now, how would you feel at work if someone who had a different job description than you did your job and got praised for it? Jealous. If you didn't, that's probably not the job for you. You don't care enough. You would be jealous. That's my job. Okay, you probably wouldn't say it that whiny, but (laughs) hey, that's my job. Don't do my job, okay? You'd be jealous. That job was given to me. That was an opportunity for me. You would be jealous. It belongs to you. And so I think that if, if there's any organization, any group, any like institution out in the world that is doing the church's job better than the church, feeding the homeless better than the church, caring for the poor and the marginalized better than the church, caring for the fatherless, the orphans better than the church, we should be jealous. That's our job. Okay, it is your job to love people. It is our job to serve people. It is our job to care for this community. And if there are other organizations out there, we don't get in the way, but we should flood those organizations with so much love and volunteer service that it would increase their effectiveness to a standard that they would have no idea how they even operated apart from the body of Christ. It is our job good works prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God has given them to you as the redeemed people of God, redeemed you, set you free from a slavery to sin. You don't have to do that anymore. You get to do this. You don't have to put sin on display anymore. You get to put the glory of God on display by feeding that person, by caring for that person, by talking to that person, by loving that person, by learning that person's name. It is our job. Thanks be to God that he entrusts such noble work to such sinners. 
We should be jealous for good works. Like, like an unemployed handyman, not just waiting for a phone call, but like going door to door. What can I do for you? Do you have any projects? Can I mow your lawn? Can I, like whatever it is, just eager to pursue good works. Don't outsource the job that Jesus gave the church to those who don't know Jesus. If you have been redeemed from sin, if you are a believer, you have been redeemed from slavery to sin. You have also been redeemed for good works. Not just a certain kind of good work, but Titus 3.1 will go on to say, be ready for every good work. Hey, I want to serve, but not there. Or... I used to serve, but not anymore. Okay, be ready for every good work. What opportunities are in front of you? And if you don't know what they are, come and ask me. I have a list. Okay, be ready for every good work because you have been redeemed from sin and therefore have been redeemed for good works. Both of these things are incredibly important aspects of redemption. We can't just have one or the other. If you have one truly, it necessitates the other. If Jesus has redeemed you, you are saved from slavery to sin. Praise God. Hallelujah. And with that comes a beautiful, honorable, noble work that he has given for you that he made for you since before the foundations of the earth that you should walk in. Now, if we're struggling with this, right? Many of us will struggle to live free from sin, okay? We still feel like there are these certain temptations, these certain sins, these certain things that are still on us, confining us, binding us, enslaving us. We, we struggle to live free from sin, or maybe you are struggling to live in zeal and, and joy for, for good works. We are ultimately struggling to live out our redemption. If we are struggling to live free from sin and struggling to pursue good works, we are actually struggling to live out of our redemption. Or worse, maybe you're struggling to actually receive redemption. You know the truth, but you've yet to surrender. See, we, we resist redemption for a variety of reasons as human beings. Not necessarily consciously, but we can resist redemption for a variety of reasons. We often struggle to accept that we need a savior. We struggle to acknowledge that our sin is really that bad. 
that our sin is greater than any act of righteousness that we could ever do. It keeps us away from God more than our good works brings us to God. We need a savior. We need someone to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And we struggle with the idea of belonging to another because in our slavery to sin, there is an appearance of autonomy. It feels like you get to choose for yourself what you do and what you do not do. It feels like you make your own choices. It feels like you have no master. It feels like you're master of your own destiny. It feels like you get to decide whether to sin or not to sin. And belonging to God feels more restricting because I like to do these things. Sin feels good. It feels powerful. It feels pleasurable. And oftentimes when we think about being redeemed from that and belonging to God, we look across this chasm, we're like, but can I really live my life without this thing that has been always been there for me? Do I really want to live my life apart from this. Belonging to God can feel more restricting, and so we resist redemption. We resist being set free. We resist it. Another reason we resist redemption is because we feel like we should be able to achieve adequate righteousness on our own. Maybe you're not living in some life of rebellion, right? You've got a laundry list of good works. You're like, check, 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 yep, zealous for good works, pursuing good works, loving good works, just adding to my laundry list of good works, just trying to work my way into the kingdom. I don't need Jesus. Oh, those people who need Jesus, if they only knew that they could just pull themselves up by their own bootstraps and do good things, then all would be well. We resist redemption because we don't want to live apart from sin. And we resist redemption oftentimes because we truly believe we should be able to be adequate ourselves, that God should uh, uh, acknowledge our good intentions and receive us based on what we have done for him. See, this is why I want us to, to, to compare and contrast salvation with redemption. See, we like salvation. We like the word salvation because salvation focuses on being saved from the penalty of sin, which is hell. Okay, salvation, we're saved from the penalty of sin. So we think about being free from hell, receiving eternal life, but redemption is an incredibly important and an oftentimes neglected aspect of salvation. And I think the, the American church, and I think at times we, we don't uh, fully understand the implications of this. At best, we understand redemption in terms of a uh, we've been set free from sin, so we have this need to purify ourselves. Paul includes that in this, that God is purifying for himself a people of his own possession. And so we think about, I've been set free from sin, so I need to live free from sin. And so we're so focused on our sanctification. We're so focused on the things that we can't do that we don't focus on the things that we're invited to do, the works of righteousness, not for our salvation, but because we have been redeemed. 
we have been not just invited, but commanded. We are slaves of righteousness, Scripture says. Okay? Or as Bob Dylan says, you got to serve somebody. Okay? It may be the devil. It may be the Lord. But you're going to serve somebody. Okay? And it's not yourself. Okay? If it's yourself, it's the devil. And so we, we like salvation because it has future eternal implications, but we wrestle with redemption. We focus on purity, but not on righteous, good works that we are called to. And then oftentimes in an evangelical church, people will go, well, that's legalism. No, it's not. Okay, never once did I say you are saved by those good works. Okay, that's legalism. Trying to work your way into the kingdom. Okay, you are saved, therefore get to work. Okay, not get to work so that you can be saved. It's a very big difference. I think the primary reason we don't have a zeal for good works is not simply because we have the wrong definition of redemption, but because we have forgotten what it cost to redeem us. Wherever we are, however we're responding to this right now, whatever we struggle with, being set free from sin or being set free for good works, we need to remember the cost, what it cost to redeem us. The passage says, Our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, gave himself. If you've trusted in Jesus, then you have been redeemed because he gave himself as payment for your redemption. He said he would give his life as a ransom for many. So to be redeemed means that you have been set free from sin. You have been set free for good works because you've been set free by the blood of Jesus. You have been set free by the blood of Jesus. If you have put your faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, you have not only been set free from condemnation, the penalty of your sin, you have been set free from slavery to sin. You are being set free from the power of sin. And one day in eternity, you will be set free from the presence of sin. The blood of Jesus redeems you and Apart from Jesus, we are slaves to sin, and the price of our ransom is death. But rather than force you to make the payment yourself, our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, has made payment for you. And let me just give you a little Greek grammar here. There is no way to understand this phrase, our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, in the original grammar, in the original language, there's no way to understand this as two individuals, okay? Jesus Christ is our great God. Jesus Christ is our Savior. You are redeemed because the God of this universe who made you for himself, bled for you on the cross to buy you back from sin and into his eternal kingdom. God has paid for you with his blood. You have been set free. And Jesus said, it is for freedom's sake that you have been set free. 
Paul says, no longer be a slave. Don't be a bondservant to men or to the law or to sin. You are not your own. You have been bought with a price. Therefore, live to God or another way. Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Salvation in Jesus is not only forgiveness of sin, it is freedom from sin and freedom for good works. Don't water down the power of your redemption and make it all about some celestial kingdom. Recognize that you have been set free from slavery to sin, set free for good works, because in them we actually partner with God in his work of redemption in this world. This whole world is in bondage to the prince and power of the air, scripture says. Satan is the ruler of this world, but Jesus is setting it free. And one of the ways he does that is by sending out his church, the redeemed people of God, as ministers of reconciliation to proclaim the blood of Christ over this creation so that all would be set free, so that all would fall under the ownership, the mastery, the lordship of our great God and savior, Jesus Christ. He has purchased you. He has repurposed you and he has empowered you by the Holy Spirit that God might live in us and through us, through his church, through you, the redeemed people of God. Heavenly Father, would you by your spirit stir us up to love and good works. Right now, Holy Spirit, would you fall on this place and break the chains of the bondage to sin God, set people free as they put their faith in Jesus. I pray that they would feel just the shackles around their heart that keeps them in resistance to God, just breaking away and falling to the floor and light shining on them and setting them free from sin. And God, set us free for worship. Even right now, Holy Spirit, just I pray that anything that is keeping us from just fully coming to you and surrendering our lives, whether in our chairs or on the carpets or to the prayer ministry on the side or, what, or by lifting our voice, would you just break those chains and set us free? I pray that we would experience a freedom like we've never encountered before, a freedom from sin, a freedom for worship, a freedom for service, a freedom for obedience, a freedom for good works, God, a freedom for love, a freedom from joy, a freedom for peace, a freedom for all of the things that you long for your people to experience. Holy Spirit, come now and set the captives free. Redeem us and let us live to the glory of God our Father. Set us free from self-righteousness. Set us free from captivity. I pray that we would worship Lord Jesus now, worship you, your name with a freedom like we've never experienced before. For your glory, for the good of your people, and for the expansion of your kingdom in this world. In Jesus' name.
Dengan 